All right, take your Bibles and turn to John 16 if you haven't done that already. Get my little light where I can see it. Probably... The title of today's message is what? When, when this stage collapsed, you got me, right? No, after all I've done for you. Joy in the world. We sing about joy to the world at Christmas, and clearly that's the whole message of Christmas. It's the message of life. God sent Jesus Christ so that we could have real joy. In the midst of this upper room discourse, as Jesus is preparing these 11 guys to carry on when he's gone, we've talked about it for several weeks now. John 16, the latter part, which we're going to look at today, he's wrapping up the discourse. He's giving them all, he's kind of summarizing everything he's been telling them. Next week, or maybe two weeks, depending on me, we're going to look at John 17, which is one of my absolutely most favorite chapters in the Bible. It's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus Christ. And you're literally going to see him read, pray for you. It is, every time I read it, I'm moved by how much has Christ loved me and what an incredible plan he had for me, allowing me part of it. That's primarily the reason I entitled this series, Our hour because you said my hour has come his hour has come time to go to the cross time to buy redemption for mankind he's saying to these 11 guys now it's your hour to go share that good news with the world and it's also our hour he allows us this moment in time and history for us to share jesus christ with precious kids like we're down front here we're talking about trying to hire a young guy to some time the teenager focus the lord with them the little the children that are over there your daily life people you interact with Every place you might find yourself, it's a sacred duty and a trust that God has placed on you and in you. Say, share with your world, your time, your hour, share the good news. So as he's wrapping up this discourse with these 11 guys, and by extension as he's sharing with us, the last thing he says to them to prepare them, he's about to go die, and they are upset. They are agonizing. We talked about last week, they're in gut-wrenching sorrow. So they're hurting so badly they can't even cry is the Greek word. And that pain is so deep. And Jesus had kept saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. I'm going away. I'm going to send the comfort. I'm going to send the helper. All of those things. And he's wrapping that up. As he's wrapping that up in the midst of their confusion, their fear, their sorrow, Jesus says to them, by the way, in the midst of all of that, you can have joy. They're probably looking at him like, what? Are you crazy? We don't feel joyful. We don't feel giddy. We don't feel happy. We are terrified. We are troubled. That's why he keeps saying, let not your heart be troubled. We're in deep sorrow here, Lord. We thought you were the Messiah, but apparently not. But you'll see later on if you read the Gospels. So what he says to them, understand one more time, in the midst of all of this, you can have joy for two reasons. Who I am and what I'm about to do. And for us, looking back, he says to us, you, Randy Lockham, you, Fill in the blank. Your name. You can have joy individually, corporately as my body in the midst of whatever you're facing right now because of who I am and what I have done for you. I am God. I am your Savior. I am the creator of the universe. I am your bridegroom. I am getting your place ready. I am coming back for you. On and on and on. Jesus says to us, you can have joy in the world because of who I am and what I have done, and even now as we sit here, 2012 to us, what I am currently doing. The Bible says in Hebrews, he ever lives, eternally lives to make a session. He is our Savior. He is our advocate with the Father. The Bible says Satan regularly goes before the Father as the accuser of the brethren, accusing God about me and about you. And at God's right hands is Christ, our Savior. He says, I got that one. I know Randy's a knucklehead, but he's mine. My blood covers. His sins are atoned for. They've been removed as far as it is from the West. You ought to just read, memorize Scripture, and then meditate on it. 
who Savior is and what he's done. It's the Romans 8.28 principle. As bad as it might look and as bad as it is in the moment, God is at work for good on my behalf, on our behalf, on your behalf. So Jesus looks at these 11 guys and says, I know you're upset. I know you're terrified. I know you're deeply grieving. You're confused. But I want you to know in the middle of all of that, you can have joy in the world. So let's see how he begins to describe it to them, starting in verse 16. Let's read 16 through 22 together. Jesus says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We don't know what he's saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. The first thing, <clears throat> the first thing I want you to see about this joy that Jesus says they can have in the world, and he says to us that you can have in the world, is that it is permanent. It is permanent. It is not temporary. It is not fleeting. It doesn't come and it doesn't go. It is available to you all the time. It is permanently there. Peter put it this way in, in one of his epistles. He said, God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's available to us. The presence of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. We have God's word. It's a matter of whether we tap into it and believe it. Do I believe that when Jesus says something, it's the truth? Or do I say, well, I believe that when I feel like it, Faith means trusting in someone who trusts worthy. Jesus has proven himself to be that, and so we trust him. So, so he says to them, you can have permanent joy. Now, I want you to go back to verse 16. It's a really interesting picture here. Jesus gives them an intentional riddle. Again, try to place yourself in the room with these guys and what's going on. And Jesus intentionally says to them something that they don't get. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus says, a little while, you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me because I go to the Father. We won't read the verses again, but in 17 and 18, what do the guys turn to each other and say? Dude, you, do you have any idea what he's talking about? I've been in meetings. I was in a meeting. I won't tell you who the person is because some of you know him. But I was in a meeting not, several years ago, and this guy spoke to us for about two hours in this meeting. It was all the leaders in our church were together, and this guy was speaking. Spoke for about two hours. Now, I consider myself semi-literate, semi-intelligent. I have a college degree. I know it's Memphis, but I got a college degree. After two hours, there's like 12 of us in the room. I turned to the guy next to me, and he's and he just, and I love our elders, but I turned to him, and I said, man, this was after the guy left. I said, I asked him, do you have any idea what he's talking about? He goes, whoa, I thought it was me. These guys in the room, they turn to each other and go, do you have any idea what Jesus is talking about? What is it? A little while you'll see me, and a little while you won't, because I go to the Father? What in the world are you talking about? Look at verse 16 one more time. A little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. This little Greek really makes it exciting for you. The first C in Greek means physically. In a little while you will not see me physically. In other words, what? What had he been telling them over and over? My hour has come. I'm going back to the Father. But he's telling them something. He's going to share something with them here that's very important as we walk through this. You will not see me physically. But the second C, there in verse 16, and again a little while, you will see me. That second C means you will understand or perceive. The first one is, you're not going to see me physically. I'm not going to be in your presence. But then you will finally get it. Now, theologians argue over exactly what he's talking about, and it could mean more than one thing. You see that many times in parables, and you see it in prophets, and immediate plus their content. But I, here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's saying, in a little while, I'm going away. You're not going to see me anymore. 
But then shortly after that, in a little while, you'll get it. Because if you read the context of history and the Bible, they get it after what event? The resurrection. For example, as we stand here, sit here today, what's the one doctrine that everything we believe hangs for one event? Resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not physically walk out of that tomb, what is he? He's a liar, but he did walk out of it. Therefore, he's God. So in a little while, you're not going to see me. But then in a little while, you will get it. But also something else happened in the immediate context. Jesus died. Can you imagine that period of time from Friday to Sunday? We get a little glimpse of it in the gospel, what these guys were going through. They were already upset, right? Pretty much. They were just, it was, it's over. Everything we thought, it's not working. He's not who we thought he was. Well, he's not who we thought he was. I'm going to go back. I don't know what you're going to do. And then you read the story of the resurrection. The women, an issue why it was women. They seen first because of the testimony of bearing liberty to those. But they run to find Peter and John. And when they do come to the empty tomb, it's like, woo! And for 40 days, Jesus appears to some in time with, what do you think he's doing today? day? We're not really told a lot. But I think, again, he's getting them, ready, getting them ready. One thing you do know, when he met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Bible says he took them to the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, and he showed them everything about himself. Greatest Bible study anybody ever, two guys had on the road to Emmaus. You don't think he did it? I think he, because you read the book of Acts, they get it, don't you? The book of Acts, proof, they get it, they live it out. The Bible says they turned the world upside down because they finally believed Jesus, everything he had been telling. They saw it. In a little while, you won't see me going away. Man, we finally get and in my life, your life. Don't you think that's our saved desire for us? No, you can't see me fit. I want you to get it because I want you to have full joy. I want you to understand this joy forever. So look at what he says to him. It's a great picture. So Jesus answers, and I want you to notice verse 19. Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring? He can, by the way, he can read mine. He's omniscient, showing them again, I am God. I even know what you're talking about. You know, I can hear all of it. But notice verse 20. Sometimes we, we miss, we pass over things like this, it's missing. What's the first phrase in verse 20? Some of your Bibles say truly, truly, right? Some may say verily, verily. If you have the, the, the uh, translation the Apostle Paul used, it says most assuredly. Most assuredly. Truly, truly. Verily, verily. You know what that means in Greek? It means absolute truth. I speak to you absolute truth. So when I speak, pay attention. Don't pass it over. Don't forget it. When you read the Bible, especially the red words of Jesus Christ, when he says, truly, truly, he means, I want you to pay attention. I, God, have something to say to you. So look what he says. I say to you, you will weep and lament. Verse 20, the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. But my favorite word in the Bible, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Remember, he just said in a little while, please get this picture. When they crucified Jesus Christ, what was the world's response? They were, they were happy. They were rejoicing. For Pilate, it was a problem gone away. For Herod, it was somebody else's problem. He's gone. For the Jews, they finally won. For Satan, the world, the prince of the power of the air, they thought they had won. They rejoiced. What were the response of the disciples? Deep sorrow. He's dead. It's over. He just died like a common thief. He was crucified. The world rejoiced. They had deep sorrow. Look at verse 20 again. Jesus said, but your sorrow will be what? Turned into joy. Don't miss that principle. Did they still have the sorrow? Did they have to go through the sorrow? Yes. The principle is God takes your sorrow, turns it into joy. The principle is, and the way he does it, is through transformation, not, excuse me, yeah, transformation, not substitution. Please don't miss that. Did Jesus have to die for the resurrection to occur? Yes. Did he have to die to buy your salvation? Yes, somebody had to pay for your sin. 
He paid for it. So the principle is, yes, you're going to have incredible sorrow, but God is going to take that sorrow, turn it into joy, transforming you from within by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He will not substitute something else because that's what we want. We want God to take it away and give us something else. No, the crucifixion. Did they want Jesus to die? Clearly not. They wanted him to overthrow the Romans, set up the kingdom, and rule from Jerusalem. But that was not God's plan. The crucifixion had to occur before the resurrection could occur. For their joy to be transformed, their sorrow to be transformed into joy, Jesus had to die. And then God, through the resurrection, transformed that incredible sorrow into unspeakable joy because he was alive. Then he gives them the illustration that everybody understands. Verse 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I love Jesus Christ, obviously the greatest teacher that ever lived, but he sure knows how to illustrate something, doesn't he? Now, we have three children. I never went through labor pains, but my wife did. You know, I had to, lay, I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go to the hospital and stuff. It was hard. I had to lay there, play cards, and watch Alabama play Missouri. It was difficult. I didn't know the guys I was playing cards with, but I, you know, I, I had to work through that. And she had to have that C-section, and I had to go back there and pass out. I had to do that. A woman reads this. She understands exactly what incredible pain, labor pain, screaming. I remember one, I won't mention which daughter, but she's getting ready to have a baby. Screaming, I want everybody out of the room. Get them out of the room. The boy wanted you that little baby, do you Not till they become a teenager. Like the mom said to, that, to her 13-year-old, for nine months I carried you around and treat me like this. What a great illustration. Because for the mom, the dad, to have that joy of holding that child and knowing that's yours, but God to pain and what the joy of your life. Your little girl, your little boy, Jesus knew how to illustrate. And he says to us, I empathize with what you're going through. I understand everything, and you have to trust me. As painful as it is right now, I'm doing a work in your life. You trust me, and you rely on the trend of pain to incredible joy, and the world around you see that, and they will say, I want to know what he, I want to know what I need in my life. Jesus saying to these 11 guys, a little while, it's going to be very difficult, but then you're going to have incredible joy. You have to go through the pain. Sorrow turned to Secondly, in verse 23, joy is not only permanent, but it's prayerful. It's prayerful. Look at verse 23. And at that day you will ask me nothing. Most surely I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, you will receive. Your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. I want you to go back for a moment and look at verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice. Your joy no one will take from you. Then he says, what do you do in the interim? I'm going to give you this permanent joy. But in that day, in that day, and I think here again, obviously he's talking about future, verse 23. In that day you will ask me nothing. The context, and as you read and you understand, he's saying to him, I'm going away. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. He's told him all this, and then I'm going to the Father. And I think what he's saying here is after I'm gone, when I have ascended to the Father, as you read the context, he's saying, you're going to pray in my name. And the result will be full joy. Look at how he puts it. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Now, what he's explaining to them is right now, physically, I'm here. He's been telling them this over and over. Just see it in the context. In that day, when I'm gone, you can't ask me face to face anymore, right? They didn't want that. But that's the way it was going to be for God's plan. He says, you can't ask me face to face anymore. But here's what you do. You pray to the Father in my name. Come back to that in just a moment. Verse 24, until now you have, at, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Look at verse 23 again. In that day you will ask me nothing most assuredly. He says it again. 
I speak to you absolute truth. Pay attention. He just told him you're going to have permanent joy. Now let me tell you how you have full joy in your prayer life. You go to the Father and you pray. You don't pray to me face to face. It's kind of like this. They've had Jesus, God the Son, with them in intimate fellowship for three and a half years. Now understand this illustration and don't consider it blasphemy. It's kind of like they went to Jesus and said, Jesus, oh, would you ask your dad something for us? Because he's God. They literally got to spend three and a half years walking around eating and spending time intimately with God in the flesh. Think about that. And by the way, they still didn't get it, did they? But Jesus said, you've been able to ask me. Now I need you to do it this way. You're going to ask the Father, which is literally what all prayer is, but in my name. Talked about this a bunch. This is why so many people don't understand prayer. So much bad theology. He says, you want to have full joy? Notice the context. You want to have full joy? Pray in Jesus' name. Not a tag at the end of your prayer, but you go to God. I want in the character, in the person, and most importantly, in the will of Jesus Christ. It's not going to God and saying, God, I expect you. I claim that you will do this, God. It's going to God and saying, Lord, what is your will concerning this illness? What is your will concerning this situation? What is your will concerning this thing in my life? Not, here's what I would like, God. Please get in on it. Which, by the way, is what most really popular preachers in our nation do. God is like genie, just waiting to do what you want. No, what God is is a loving father who only gives the children what they need, like you would do if you were a, as a good father. You give your children what they need, not what they want. Sometimes they're the same, but not always. So Jesus said, now you want to have full joy, pray in my name, and the Father will give you that. I'm not going to give you what you want. He's going to give you what you pray in my name, in Jesus' name. Third thing, verse 25, you will have powerful joy. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and, do not say, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me. You have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. He's teaching them, again, things he's taught them, he's reminding them. You will have powerful joy in your life, this permanent, this full joy that I want you to have. It's related to three things he's mentioning here. Number one, because you love me. And in your life and in my life, if I want to have this kind of joy, it begins with, do I really love Jesus Christ or am I just saying that I do? Am I in love with Jesus Christ or is he just somebody who died on the cross for my sins and I really appreciate it. I'd like to go to heaven one day when I die. Jesus said, do you love me? To Peter, who is in the room as he's speaking this, before he ascends, he has to remind Peter, you denied me three times. You love me, you love me, you love me. You to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Do you really love me? Is giving lips. By the way, how much about you does Jesus? Everything. So if you don't love him, it doesn't do you any good to lie to him. You can lie to me. You could tell me you love me and I make me feel good and I appreciate it. You can't lie to Jesus. He knows your heart. You either do or you don't. You don't be honest with him. But if you do, then live like you do. Love for Jesus. Secondly, it's faith in Jesus. Your Christian life begins by trusting Jesus. You live it every day by trusting. You die trusting to save you. Because you know you can't save you. You're desperately in need of a Savior. He came and died for you. And by faith, trust him. And you live that way by loving him. And the reason it all works is the authority of Jesus. You see, you have a saying, from this time forward, I want you to understand a couple of things. You've been able to look me in the eye and obey me. Trust me. But I'm going away where you can't see me. Are you going to trust me when I'm not visibly there? Where you can touch, shake my hand? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to love me? Here's why you should. Because of where I go. Who I am. I have the authority of God. Earlier he'd put it this way. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. 
He is God. He goes to the right hand of the throne of God because that's the seat of power, majesty, and honor in all the universe. And he rules from there. And he's our advocate from there. I mentioned earlier, he is eternal, almighty God. He sits at the right hand of the throne because he is God. And then finally, you have joy. Verse 29, his disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and you're using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things. You have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered him, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come. You will be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's two things he wanted them to get as he wraps up this discourse. Assurance about who Jesus is, assurance about who Jesus is, and the attributes of Jesus Christ, who he, who he is specifically, so they would know. In verses 19 through 28, leading up to this last section, he, had, he had, again had just shown them, I even know what you're thinking, and I know you're confused. So now they say, well, verse 30, they acknowledge this, and they say, now we believe. Now we believe. So Jesus reminds them one more time with a little challenge, verse 31 and 32. He says, now do you believe? He says, I'm telling you, the time is coming, and actually the hour is here. It's about to go. And you're going to be scattered. He'd already told Peter what? You'll deny me three times. Peter's response was what? Yeah, you'll deny me time. And he's saying, all of you are going to be scattered. You're going to go back to your own. That means you're going to go back to your place of whatever, your own place. Here's the principle. They said, we now get it. We believe. What's Jesus challenged them? Do you really? Take a minute and examine yourself. Do you really believe? What would he say to me and to you? Don't just say you believe. Believe. James, the epistle of James, about that very principle. Faith without works, dead. You can say it. You believe me. You will live it out. You will love other people. They will see that it's real. He challenges them. I'm going to give you, I want you to write down a couple of things and then we're going to be through. Just some principles. I wrote these down after I had done the sermon. It's kind of came to praying over it again. Because I want you to notice closely verse 33. Jesus said, in me you will have what? Peace. In the world you will have what? It is two given facts. In the world, you will have tribulation. In me, you can have peace. Why? Notice the way he puts it. Because I have what? I have overcome the world. Here's what I want you to notice about that. The Greek there, I have overcome the world. The tense of that is, it's an accomplished fact, past tense. Had Jesus gone to the cross yet? No. We look back, we realize what happened. They did not. But he's saying to them, I've already accomplished this for you. You see, God... For with God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as God is out of time. It was limited while on earth, space and time. But he's saying to them, this is a done deal in the mind of God. You are victorious because I've already overcome. We need to understand, we look back. Jesus conquered sin and death. We no longer have to worry about that bondage. He overcame that. So here are the two things I want you to write down, the principles. The summary of the upper room disc, Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you. See, but I want you to summarize it for you this way. In me, you'll have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I have come the world. I want you to notice on your outline at the bottom, 1 Peter 1. I'll give you something else to write down. So look at 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, 
So now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You've not seen Jesus, but you trust him. Here are the two principles I want you to write down. Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' resurrection means he will never die again. Which means we will never be separated from him. Jesus' resurrection means he will never die again, which means we will never be separated from him. And Jesus' resurrection means we will never die spiritually. Jesus' resurrection means we will never die spiritually. What Jesus said right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, incredible words. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he may die, yet he will live. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That is the question every being planet Earth has to answer. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection of life? Because you're going to die physically. You do not have to die spiritually. And he says to us, by trusting me, believing in me, you can have full joy in the world right now. Not happy, not giddy all the time, but an inner peace that comes from Christ. He's overcome. Next week, we're going to look at his prayer. It's mind-boggling. A little homework for you during the week. Just read John 17 over and over again. Realizing it's Jesus praying. Just read it. It will really encourage you. Just read it. Let's pray. Father, we pause and, and thank you for being our God. Even as we pray, Jesus just taught us the idea of praying to the Father. It's through Jesus. Because of who he is and what he did, we have prayer that works. We can boldly talk to God the Father because of God the Son. So, Lord, we want to pray in Jesus' name. Not our name, not our plans, but his. As individuals, as a church, as a body of believers, we want to be what Jesus wants us to be. I want to be what Jesus wants me to be. I pray that's the prayer of each person here. I pray it's our prayer corporately. Father, if there's one person here who doesn't have that joy, doesn't know Jesus, that this will be the moment they can say, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I do believe that's how I can be saved. I do believe that I'm a sinner, that you paid for my sins. Forgive me. Say, I need joy in this world. And Lord, for the Christians, I pray that would be our attitude, to have joy in the world because Jesus has overcome the world. We pray for that peace. We pray in Jesus' name.